Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Quick to Listen, Slow to Speak, Toxic Talk in the Virtue of Silence. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 16th, 2012. Last month, my wife began her 17th year teaching second grade, and so our dinner conversations have included stories about our new class, cute kids and smart kids, academic challenges and behavior problems, anxious parents and peanut allergies. One girl's story made me cringe. When Melanie wouldn't do her work, my, aunt, my wife asked why. She said, my dad yelled at me last night because I couldn't go to sleep. Melanie's mother is in jail. A self-portrait she drew pictured an angry child with eyes squeezed tight and teeth bared. It's a painful example of the power of speech to inflict personal harm. And what about our country's political speech? It's hard to imagine anything more vapid or more corrosive to civic life. What we say often reveals our lack of wisdom. As when Re Representative Todd Akin, who's running for the U.S. Senate, commented on abortion in the case of rape. He said, from what I understand from doctors, that's really rare. If it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. What was he thinking? How can someone who was really smart say something so stupid? We all have our own memories, words that wound or heal, given and received. The Epistle of James includes the longest passage in the Bible about the role of speech in the life of a Christian. We all stumble in many ways, writes James. Only the person who has tamed the tongue can claim Christian maturity. It's not easy. Humanity has tamed the world of nature, he observes, but no one can tame the tongue. Human speech seems innocent enough. <clears throat> After all, the tongue is such a small part of the body. But its small size belies its powerful influence. James compares it to a bit that controls a horse or a rudder that steers an enormous ship. The tongue can burn like a raging forest fire, he says, incinerating everything it touches. It corrupts both the subject and object of speech. What we say to one another, James writes, can be full of deadly poison that kills. <clears throat> what we say can reveal more about us than about the recipient of our speech. The scary part about toxic talk is that it reveals the character of our inner identity. Out of the overflow of the heart, said Jesus, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. 
But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. With our words we name the world and each other, and in some sense our naming creates a genuine reality. Once our speech and narratives take hold, they have tremendous power for good or evil. They can exclude or embrace, heal or humiliate, lift up or tear down. How many of us have internalized self-hatred that resulted from repeated criticisms from a parent? How many can still remember a compliment made by an elementary school teacher, even though it was made many decades ago? Or who has experienced the futile attempt of overcompensation to prove your self-worth against schoolyard taunts? James writes, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? And so James commends a spiritual discipline that's good for our own selves and even better for our neighbor. He writes, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Silence is a great virtue. Silence and stillness were essential practices of the early desert mothers and fathers. Here are several examples. It was said of Abba Agathon that for three years he lived with a stone in his mouth until he learned to keep silence. He also said, the victory over all the afflictions that befall you is to keep silence. A brother asked Abba Pullman, is it better to speak or to be silent? The old man said to him, the man who speaks for God's sake does well, but he who is silent for God's sake also does well. And one more, even to the point of death, monks should control themselves so as not to speak. In our own day, the Quakers practiced silence not just as a personal discipline, but as central to their corporate worship. They call it expectant waiting. Silence can mean more than the absence of speech and the cessation of words. But it's more than that, says John Chrysavis in his book, In the Heart of the Desert. He describes silence as a way of waiting a way of watching, and a way of listening. Silence is a way of dying to self. Which self-denial and dying is commended by Jesus in this week's Gospel? In silence we die to the need to justify ourselves, to be heard, or to condemn others. Way back in the year 1984, the filmmaker Philip Gronig asked the remote and reclusive Monastery Grand Chartreuse if he could make a documentary of their monastic life. It's too soon, they said, maybe in 10 to 13 years. And then in 2001, 
they called him back and said they were ready. And so at long last, Grunig spent six months by himself filming the everyday life of the Carthusian monks, founded in the year 1084, high in the French Alps. His film that resulted is called Into Great Silence. The film captures monastic silence as a way of life. It begins in winter and ends in spring, which makes the stunning scenery reason enough to watch the film. There's no narration or any music in this film. The only sounds are those of daily life, like pouring a pitcher of water, birds outside the window, bells, or even cutting a piece of cloth with shears. Even the brief scenes of the monks chanting the liturgy are exceptions to their vows of near-total silence. Says one monk, the absence of language makes something. The moment itself becomes very, very strong. Theirs is a life full of paradox, austere and yet rich, silent but resonant, simple in the extreme and yet complex, alone in a cell, but together in a community. Useless by the world's standard, but meaningful if ever there was meaning. The film is long at 162 minutes, and more of a meditation than a documentary on what monastic life was like 900 years ago. Watching this film, you not only learn about monastic silence, you have an opportunity to practice it yourself. For books this week, I review a title called At the Edge of the Abyss, <clears throat> a concentration camp diary, 1943-1944. The very young author was David Coker, K-O-K-E-R. Evanston, Northwestern University Press, 2012, 397 pages. Thursday, February 11th, picked up between 11 and 12 p.m. One police officer decent but anxious, one unpleasant. I heard them coming. With that entry, David Coker, 1921 to 1945, a young Dutch Jew, began a book-length diary of his life and death in the Vogt concentration camp. His last entry was one year later, on February the 8th, 1944. Vogt was a regular labor camp, not an extermination camp, although the inmates constantly dreaded its transformation into what was called a transit camp in the regular mass transports to Auschwitz. Installments of the diary, written in exercise books, were smuggled out by civilian workers in the camp. They eventually found their way to David's brother, Max, who survived five concentration camps, then to Dutch state archives, where they came to the attention of David's high school teacher, Robert Jan van Pelt. He, in turn, published the original Dutch diary in 1977. It was an immediate classic and public publishing sensation. 
Coker's diary is especially important in the Holocaust literature for a number of reasons. Make no mistake, this is a trip to the inner circle of Dante's hell. But, having said that, the diary is an example of what Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. In Coker's own words, he writes, The dreadful thing about the camp is that it so treacherously imitates real life and happiness. There are bad people who are good, like compassionate SS guards who are just soldiers and not anti-Semites, who turn a blind eye to broken curfews and lovemaking, and who instead of arresting Jews give them gifts, and even crack jokes when the numbers for roll call don't add up. We also encounter good people who are bad, like inmates who connive, steal, betray, run a camp brothel, and quarrel over who got more butter. There's art, music, love, and beauty, but also tremendous degradation, hunger, and evil. With his own privileged status in the camp, Coker survived much longer than many. I was surprised to read how food parcels and mail from family and friends were a regular part of camp life. Coker had better jobs and even had responsibility for deciding who would be transported to the extermination camps. There were choices, personal preferences, and trade-offs. He writes, when you've played at being Providence for an evening, you go to bed with a moral hangover and great doubts. He's well, of his own, he's well aware of his own complicity, too, and ambition, and even admits how much he liked to polish the apple. At times, Coker becomes insensitive to the humanity of it all and reproaches himself for how easily everything becomes routine and untragic. There's endless speculation and rumor about the course of the war, whether the commandant is coming, what the other camps are like, and the threat of transport to the east. Most fascinating of all, Coker records what might be the only eyewitness written account by an inmate of a face-to-face -face encounter with Heinrich Himmler, and it's a fine example of the young Coker's power of observation, reflection, and superb writing, all under dreadfully dangerous circumstances. A 60-page introduction introduces the larger context of the war in the Netherlands in Coker's family. Over 800 footnotes in the book elucidate the details of people, places, events, and Nazi policies. A final appendix recounts what little we know about how David Coker actually died, and also what we do know about the fates of many people mentioned in the diary. The author, David Coker, the title, At the Edge of the Abyss, <coughs> For film this week, I review Moonrise Kingdom from 2012. Young Sam was orphaned by his parents and rejected by his foster family. He's friendless at Boy Scout summer camp. Susie, also age 12, has been labeled a troubled child. She hates her parents, who barely talk to each other, and no wonder, her mother calls the kids to dinner with a megaphone. And so Sam and Susie flee their 1965 New England town 
to escape its oppressive adult world and find first love on a deserted island. All the crazy adults sit out to rescue them. Director Wes Anderson combines adolescent melancholy, innocence, adventure befitting Robinson Crusoe, and witty humor. He's put himself into the shoes of those 12-year-olds and tells this story of childhood from their perspective. Any former Boy Scout will affirm that he nails that special vibe. This isn't a cute film at all. After all, a massive storm bears down on the island, befitting the angst of everyone. Rather, it's all about that mysterious vortex of childhood whirling toward adulthood. You leave the theater wondering, am I happy or sad to be an adult instead of a child? The answer isn't clear. Moonrise Kingdom And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by the farmer and poet Wendell Berry. The title is The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Wendell Berry, The Peace of Wild Things. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 16th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.